Good evening, and welcome to another edition of On Parenting. Good evening, this is Jack Petrash at WPFW 89.3 Pacifica Radio, and welcome to On Parenting. This is our February show. We are going to be taking a look tonight at the commercial influences in the lives of children. And February is a good month to do that because we just had two weeks ago the Super Bowl. And it just underscores how advertisement is aimed at our society with those spots on the Super Bowl selling for $3 million apiece. It was amazing that in these economic times they all sold out. And it just underlines the... the belief that advertising has that if they get our attention, they'll be able to influence our decisions. And this is true of adults, but it's so much more true of children. And tonight we're going to be asking the question, how how does the commercial influence affect our children? I want to read you a piece from a book called Consuming Kids. It's by Susan Lynn, and it begins... My daughter is a popular kid these days. Taco Bell wants her, and so does Burger King. Abercrombie and Fitch has a whole store devoted to her. Plus, Pert Plus has a shampoo she'll love. Ethan Allen is creating bedroom sets she can't live without. Alpo even wants to sell her dog food. With single-minded competitiveness, reminiscent of the California gold rush, Corporations are racing to stake their claim on the consumer group, formerly known as children. What was once the purview of a few entertainment and toy companies has escalated into a gargantuan, multi-tentacled enterprise with a combined marketing budget estimated at over $15 billion annually. Children are the darlings of corporate America. They're targets for marketers of everything from hamburgers to minivans and it's not good for them. Those are the words of Susan Lynn, and Susan Lynn is joining us tonight. Uh, Susan is the director of the Campaign for Commercial Free Childhood. She comes to us from the Judge Baker Center at Harvard Medical School, and welcome, Susan. Oh, hi, Jack. It's so nice to be talking with you. Uh, it's great to have you on. And joining Susan tonight is Dr. Velma LaPointe from Howard University. Uh, Dr. LaPointe is a professor of education. She's a professor of child development at the School of Education at Howard, and she's also a member of the Campaign for a Commercial Free Childhood. Welcome, Velma. Thank you, Jack. It's so nice to have you both on. Now, Susan, how did it come about that you, working in Boston, and Velma working here in Washington, D.C., uh, became colleagues well, actually, I, you know, I was thinking about that, um, and hi, Velma. Hi, Susan. To be talking with you this way. Um, you know, the, the commercialization of childhood, the escalation, really began in earnest in, in the mid to late 80s. And it continued, you know, throughout the 90s. And there were individual pockets of people all over the country who were concerned about various aspects of this. And I was in Boston, and I was, you know, writing a lot about Teletubbies, you know, (laughs) the fact that PBS was marketing this television show as educational for babies when they had no research to show that it was educational. And so I was getting more and more interested in this, and then I discovered that um, Velma was putting on a conference, and I think it was the first ever conference at Howard on corporate influences on children, and um, so I contacted her, and then she asked me to come down and speak at that conference, and it was an incredible eye-opener. There were people from all over the country coming to this, to this conference who were so worried about what was happening to children in childhood, and a lot of the people that are now you know, on the steering committee of the Campaign for Commercial Free Childhood were actually at that conference. Now, Velma, you're a member of that steering committee. Can you tell our listeners uh, what kind of work you all are doing at the Campaign for Commercial Free Childhood? Yes. uh, On the steering committee, we plan a national conference uh, that takes place uh, every 18 months. So we are now planning one for uh, next year uh, in April. And uh, at that conference, we bring together the researchers, the policymakers, advocates, 
uh, parents and others who, again, are just very, very concerned, who have actually taken action uh, against the uh, commercialization of childhood. Another activity that we do is that we decide upon and craft a response to uh, specific corporate uh, representatives and strategies that market products and services at youth uh, who, um, or those products and services that we feel are undermining the development of, uh, of uh, children and adolescents. And finally, uh, we also mount uh, national mobilization efforts where we might um, uh, craft a letter and ask people to sign on uh, in response to a local but yet a national issue that is just uh, so egregious that we feel uh, that there is a need to uh, take action to essentially get corporations to basically back off of what they what they are doing um, in terms of uh, marketing and advertising to children. Uh, so you all go to bat for children, which is just wonderful. Now, Susan, I wanted to... Um, well, I should just mention that Susan Lynn's the author of two books, and we read from Consuming Kids, and tonight we're going to be spending a lot of time looking at the, the kind of thoughts and ideas that are in Consuming Kids, but I, I should also just take a moment and mention that Susan has a, a delightful new book called The Case for Make-Believe, and what it deals with is the importance of play in the lives of children. It's another worthy publication. Now, Susan, in your book, Consuming Kids, you talk about the changes that have occurred in the way in which advertising zeroes in on children and how those changes have taken place in the last 30 years. And I just want to read something from that. It says, comparing the advertisement and the advertising of two or three decades ago to the commercialism that permeates our children's world today is like comparing a BB gun to a smart bomb. And could you say a little bit about that? How, how have things changed? Yeah, it's, I think it's really important for um, with the, when people think about advertising and marketing to kids is that they really have to take a moment and, and remember that it's not the way that it was when they were kids. Um, you know, 20 years ago, all parents had to worry about pretty much was television. Maybe videos were just starting to come in. So when people ta thought about uh, com commercialism, they thought about television commercials. And, you know, there were only five channels, basically. And, um, and so there was, um, so people thought about television commercials, and, you know, commercials are just so 20th century now. The advertising industry isn't thinking about commercials anymore. What they're thinking about is um, insinuating their brands into every aspect of children's lives. And, they, and, and one of the ways that they can do this is, is the really unfortunate combination of the um, proliferation of highly sophisticated miniaturized electronic te technology with unregulated commercialism. And that combination is just a disaster for children because it's not just that children are marketed to on television. They're also marketed to um, in, in movies and in video games and on cell phones and on MP3 players. And there are screens everywhere, including the back seat of their parents' car or in airports or in elevators. I mean, it's really, you know, it's very, very hard for parents to really limit commercialism in children's lives. Yeah. And no. it's even actually more than that. Marketing in schools has escalated. Um, the marketing industry is, you know, is, is on the brink of using the GPS system on cell phones to be able to directly market to children. Oh, there's a McDonald's, you know, 30 feet from you. <laughs> I, I, I'm sorry that I laugh because no, it is I so insidious, but it's just hard to believe. Yes, uh, it is. Now, now, Susan, I know that there have been changes also in government policy that have allowed marketing to children to, to really take large steps forward. Um, could you mention for our listeners some of the governmental changes that took place in the 80s that really shifted this, this whole marketing Sure, and approach. I think it's also important um, to um, to know that the United States actually regulates marketing to children less than most other industrialized nations, industrialized democracies. 
we really have less less regulation than most of the other um, democracies in the world. And and what happened is that in the late 1970s there was a big push to limit television advertising to children. There was a lot of concern about sugar and and the sugary cereals that were being marketed to kids on television. And uh, interestingly enough, not because of obesity, which is the major concern now, because people worried about you know dental cavities. Um, and so the the Federal Trade Commission looked at what available research on advertising and marketing to kids, and they decided that they were going to ban marketing to children under the age of eight, and they were going to do it based on the research that shows that until the age of eight, children don't understand persuasive intent. They don't understand the fundamental basis of advertising. And so their FTC felt that since you can regulate marketing based on being either unfair or deceptive, they decided it was unfair to market to children under the age of eight because they didn't have the cognitive wherewithal to be able to defend themselves. And they also were going to ban junk food advertising to children under the age of 12. Well, what happened in the next two years is that there was enormous corporate pressure on Congress from the sugar industry and the toy industry, the media industry. And so in 1980, instead of banning marketing to kids in this country, what happened is that the, the Congress actually severely restricted the FTC's ability to regulate marketing to kids. And so now it's easier in this country to regulate marketing to adults than, than it is to regulate marketing to children. So that, that was a big shift. And then in the mid-1980s, a Cong- when, when um, a lot of it was being deregulated under Reagan, Congress deregulated children's television. And that meant that suddenly it was perfectly fine to create a television program for the sole purpose of selling toys. So that led to the Power Rangers and, you know, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and Pokemon today, you know, all, all those kinds of programs. And within a year, all of the 10 best selling toys had some link to commercial media. We're talking tonight with Susan Lynn and Dr. Velma LaPointe. Our number here at the studio is 202 588 0893, and you're listening to On Parenting. And give us a call if you have a question for our guests. Now, Velma, one of the things that you and, and Susan know is that the pervasive effects of advertising uh, influence children in adverse ways, real ways. It's not just a, a subtle um, change in their, in their mindset or a preoccupation with products and pestering their parents to buy, but it affects their health and their nutrition, and it affects them in real ways. Um, would you speak a little bit, um, please, about the impact of advertising on children's eating habits and what kind of issues that raises for us. Uh, Thank you, Jack. Well, the research indicates that uh, childhood obesity uh, can be attributed to both uh, children, adolescents, uh, sedentary lifestyle. That is, they're not outside playing. Uh, In many of our schools, uh, recess has been taken out. Uh, Physical education programs have been moved. Uh, out of the schools, and um, much of that sedentary lifestyle has been replaced with, at at least at home, uh, with uh, too much screen time. But in addition to the sedentary lifestyle, uh, research has uh, suggested that children are eating far too much low-nutritious foods, and much of it is Uh, through the targeting, that targeting advertising uh, of low-nutritious junk food to children, which is high in fat and sugar. Um, And we know that uh, much of these food products are coming, uh, the the targeted marketing is coming as a result of the uh, commercial uh, media uh, on the screen, television, uh, and in addition, not only just television or the screen, but radio, television, the videos, um, the internet, uh, the cell phones. And so it's literally 24-7 that children are marketed uh, this uh, insidious uh, junk food. And it certainly has uh, created uh, uh, an epidemic in childhood 
uh, uh, obesity as well as children being overweight. Mm-hmm. Now, Velma, one of the things that surprised me, because my, my work doesn't involve me with this research, and so I just stand here and I shake my head, but I, I read here that in 1970, just um, McDonald's annual sales were $587 million. And then they created the slogan, you deserve a break today, which they marketed to moms to help them um, come to the understanding that if they send their children to McDonald's, it gives them the break that they deserve. And within four years, their sales had jumped to $1.9 billion. And what amazes me is the, the immediate impact of advertising on our choices as adults, but much more so as children. Absolutely. And um, the other health question that, that I'm interested in is, is the, the sale of cigarettes mm-hmm. to kids and the whole uh, approach of advertising through products like Camel cigarettes, which aim really at teenagers. Could you say a little bit about that? Well, absolutely. Uh, there was regulation to remove uh, a, a very famous character, Joe Camel, from uh, the marketing of uh, cigarettes, uh, primarily aimed at children to get cigarette uh, advertisements off of the screen. But as you know, uh, in certain movies, even uh, PG-rated uh, 13 movies, you see an awful lot of smoking uh, in the uh, television programs. And I know here locally, uh, and no doubt nationally, uh, there are some retailers that sell single uh, cigarettes that would be much less expensive for younger people to buy than, let us say, a package of cigarette, a, a pack of cigarettes. Uh, we also know that tobacco companies have moved their products uh, aimed specifically at youth to uh, international markets uh, in uh, so-called developing countries where policies and laws are not as stringent as they are in this country. And even back to this country, we know that uh, many manufacturers are, 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 are marketing uh, candied-flavored uh, tobacco products. And so um, the tobacco uh, industry has uh, really not as much as we'd like to think have backed off of uh, selling its products uh, to children. And, you know, one of the things um, that I always think is, is amazing is that the research shows that if, if you don't start smoking, if you can hold off from smoking um, and, and not start before the age of 19, then you're not going to be a smoker. I mean, that's what the research is finding. So in order for, you know, tobacco companies to get customers, they have to target children. It's interesting to think that they... Cigarette companies are reading the same research that you're reading, right? And yeah, they're just yeah, they're just interpreting it That's a little exactly, differently. Yeah. <laughs> Their no, response is a little different, I think. Susan, with your campaign for commercial free childhood, what kind of action can you, what effect can you all have with something as large as a cigarette company? Well, actually, um, you know, there has been, you know, a lot of advocacy, um, successful advocacy around uh, tobacco companies, and we do have. The master settlement, and 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 that has you know led you know to I think some diminished mm-hmm. um, you know advertising uh, um, cigarettes to children, but um, but the other I, hello yes oh okay sorry yeah. I'm I'm having a little I'm breaking up on this end yeah. for some reason no we can hear you there's a little uh, bit of static but we oh, hear but you it's fine okay um. But we, you know, we take on all sorts of, of major corporations, and we've had really surprising success. And we got McDonald's to stop one of their marketing programs in schools. We got Disney to significantly change it, the way that it advertised Baby Einstein. We got Hasbro to um, Hasbro was going to put out a highly sexualized doll based on the Pussycat dolls, and we um, we actually got them to stop. So uh, I, it, it's so easy to feel kind of hopeless when you think of these major corporations. But in fact, the um, CCFC has really been surprisingly successful. It's wonderful. 
We're speaking with Susan Lynn and Velma LaPointe tonight on On Parenting. Our number here is 202-588-0893. Now, Susan, there's another adverse effect of, of advertising that I wanted to, to speak about, and that's violence, the uh, proliferation of, of video games and its effect on children. Um, is this something that, that you all are paying attention to at the Center for a Commercial Free Childhood? Um, yes. I mean, and, and, you know, as we're talking, the, the thing about advertising and marketing is that it's a link to so many of the problems facing children today. We've talked about childhood obesity, underage tobacco use, uh, then there's, you know, underage drinking, sexualization, youth violence, the erosion of children's creative play. So it, 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 it's not the cause of any of those problems, but it's a factor in all, in all of them, and it's certainly a factor in youth violence, and that's actually really well documented. Uh, in 2000, all of the major public health organizations, the American Medical Association, the American Academy of Pediatrics, American Psychological Association, they got together and they reviewed a 1,000 studies conducted over 30 years and, and came to the conclusion, they all agreed that, in fact, um, screen violence, watching violence on, on a screen does have or can have an impact on children's behaviors and also on, on their attitudes towards violence. Well, thank you. We're going to turn to the phone now. We have a call. Yes, hello? Hi, thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. I'm so excited by the topic. It's um, really, really important for myself as a parent, any of us who are trying to do things a little differently as parents. And um, one of the things I was wondering if your guests could talk about is, one, I have a seven-year-old boy, and certainly when you started talking about violence, I relate, and just in general, trying to help him um, feel comfortable not buying into the, the larger culture's idea of what a seven-year-old boy should be into. <laughs> violence being one of those things, and then um, if there were any suggestions on how to support him and just um, getting through this time period where he's being so inundated with the commercialism and um, these really rigid gender roles and ideas. And then my other question was, can your guests recommend any books that we could read together or that I could read myself that would help me guide him through this time? Thank you for your questions. I'm going to turn first to Velma LaPointe and then to Susan. Uh, thank you both. Thank you. Yes, uh, those are very good questions. Um, one of my recommendations, and it's in uh, much of the uh, literature for parents in many parenting books, and that is to reduce the amount of screen time in your child's life. You know, the new technologies really allow parents to be bypassed in monitoring what their young ones are listening to or watching. And so I think the first thing you can do is to reduce the amount of exposure to screen time in your child's life, uh, monitor with your child, uh, monitor the videos, the uh, movies, um, television at home, and as an and come up with alternatives to watching television, uh, doing programs. Clearly, those that are uh, community programs that come through your school or other organizations, faith-based organizations, or other kinds of organizations that promote uh, doing with and for community members, I think that would be one way to start. And there are some others. For example, I find myself every Saturday morning listening to The Parents' Journal, a show very much like this one that comes on every Saturday, and invariably there, are, uh, there is a, a topic that comes up about uh, ways to counter the materialistic values and the negative influences as a result of some of this product marketing that comes about, not every program, but uh, at least 
once a month, there are some strategies that uh, parents can use that would help to uh, mitigate against these very toxic kinds of uh, things that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Velma. Susan, do you have something to add for our caller? Um, sure, and I, I think that Velma's um, suggestions really make a lot of sense. You know, in my book, Consuming Kids, I actually have a lot of recommendations, you know, for parents, and not just for what they can do in their own family, but also things that they can do in their community and with their school to, um, to help limit the sort of the bombardment of advertising and marketing um, on, on children's lives. And I, I think that... Um, I think that there are things that you can do in your family, and certainly that, that, that limiting screen time, it just becomes more and more and more important because it's so pervasive. And it's not that I'm anti-screen. I mean, you know, I watch television. You worked for television. And, and I have, <laughs> yes. I, and I worked with Fred Rogers. So I, I can see the, the potential value of television, but the reality is that there are too many screens in the lives of too many children today and that's a big burden to place on parents but i think that it's really important and i and to to limit them and also that um getting kids out in nature nature is a good antidote to commercialism that's a wonderful thing to mention um some families are turning off all screens including cell phones one night a week and playing games together i think that's that's really important but i also think that parents um, and people who care about children need to become activists and advocates around this issue. And that's why um, I co-founded the Campaign for Commercial Free Childhood. And, um, and we've done things like take on the Motion Picture Association of America around the way that PG-13 movies are being marketed to kids. This past summer, there were four or five incredibly violent movies rated by the um, movie industry as being suitable only for kids 13 and over. And yet these four or five movies came out with 2,000 toys, and significant numbers of those toys were marketed to preschool kids. Well, thank you, Susan. We're going to go to the phones. Hello, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Uh, Well, welcome. Hi, how are you doing? Okay. Actually, I would like to say uh, I'm glad to be on the phone right now talking to y'all. I was uh, referred to y'all by a friend. I was driving with him. He said, hey, Camille, since you're always talking some knowledge stuff, why don't you uh, uh, tap into PWF? I was like, okay. So I come in the house, and I listen to y'all one day, and y'all talk about pledging. Uh-huh. But I actually couldn't pledge because, you know, I'm just in the bind right now going through some things with, uh, financially. So I just listen to y'all anyway. And today I actually came up with some topics that me and my mate talk about all the time, about when we were just talking about uh, yesterday, about what we watch on TV, and basically how I came up. And I grew up where, in my family, we were, it was strict. We didn't watch TV. I was uh, I, I was raised in the Ansar, and they had us watching, if you did watch TV, we were watching Reading Rainbow. Uh-huh. That was a great program, oh my, too. <laughs> oh, my goodness, that was a great program. Mm-hmm. And and it was so great that you had dreams about it. And you wouldn't want to smoke or drink because, like, the the, the, the things that they show you and how you look when you, when you are on alcohol or you're smoking a cigarette or smoking things like that in that nature, you don't look right. And it scares you, actually. So we were coming up, you wouldn't want to do that. But I'm also testimony to where... Once I got out of that, it's a whole nother road, yeah. you know, and that's what, uh, what, what what's um, the lady's name? Uh, um, Dr. Dr. LaPointe and Susan Lynn. Susan Lynn. I, mm-hmm. uh, she, she was just talking about how watching TV, she said she don't really, um, she don't look down on watching TV that much, but it's how would it influence the children. And she's right. Like, if you sit there and watch TV all day, you're being programmed. You're not more. You're not out finding out your potential of what you can do. You're just watching it home. You know what I'm saying? You're watching it at home. You're watching the potential of what someone else doing on TV. Instead of you getting up, doing it yourself, going outside, 
and, and making your own show, so to speak. I really appreciate what you say. I want to thank you for your call. It's just wonderful to remember that we should encourage children to be involved in real life and not virtual life. We're coming to a point now where we're going to take a little break for a public service announcement, but we'll be back after that break with Susan Lynn and Velma LaPointe, and we'll be talking about the commercial influences in childhood, so stay with us. This is a WPFW Black History Moment. Benjamin Banneker. Born November the 9th, 1731, Ellicott's Mills, Maryland. Died October the 25th, 1806, Baltimore, Maryland. Banneker was a mathematician, astronomer, compiler of almanacs, inventor and writer, one of the first important black American intellectuals. A free black who owned a farm near Baltimore, Banneker was largely self-educated in astronomy, by watching the stars, and in mathematics by reading borrowed textbooks. In 1761, he attracted attention by building a wooden clock that kept precise time. Encouraged in his duties by a Maryland industrialist, Joseph Ellicott, he began astronomical calculations about 1773, accurately predicted a solar eclipse in 1789, and published annually from 1791 to 1802, the Pennsylvania, Delaware, Maryland, and Virginia Almanac. Appointed to the District of Columbia Commission by President George Washington in 1790, he worked with Andrew Ellicott and others in surveying Washington, D.C. As an essayist and pamphleteer, Banneker opposed slavery and war. He sent a copy of his first almanac to Thomas Jefferson, then U.S. Secretary of State, along with a letter asking Jefferson's aid in bringing about better conditions for American blacks. Banneker's almanacs were acclaimed by European scientists to whom Jefferson made them known. Well, welcome back to On Parenting. We're here at WPFW 89.3 Pacifica Radio. And this is Jack Petrash, the host of On Parenting. And our guests tonight are Velma LaPointe and Susan Lynn. Susan, I wanted to come back to this, this topic of, of violence and video games and movies and just ask you um, if you could speak a, li a little bit about the specific video games. I know in your book you talk about Grand Theft Auto, which is a popular game with young boys and, um, and yet a very violent game. Yes, I, I think that unless you've actually seen video games or played them, that it's really hard to imagine how incredibly violent they are. And Grand, the Grand Theft Auto series is a best-selling um, video game series for children, um, for preteens, really young kids play these games, and that's the one where you can have sex with a prostitute and then kill her. That's one of the choices. Um, in, in actually each of the games that I've, um, I've, I'm familiar with, that's one of the choices for players. They can have sex with a prostitute and then kill her. And, and um, the, the, I mean, there are manhunt Two, for instance, is this game where, among other things, you you know that you can choose to saw open somebody's stomach while they're still alive and and awake. It's it, they're unbelievably violent, and they're marketed to really young children. It is hard to believe. We're going to go back to the phones. We have a caller. Yes, hello. Hi, my name is Thomas Bailey. I was actually just listening to your program. And I was just, just I uh, never really thought of some of these concepts before, but hearing you talk about it, now I, and I've reviewed some of the things in my life, and I actually do think that you have a valid point, and I just wanted to tell you, keep on working, because you are wonderful people to really realize this, and you're helping us. Well, thank you. And uh, my name's Tom Spell, and I'm actually 12, and, I, my, and a running joke in my family is my dad's a conspiracy theorist. That's a running joke among us kids in the family. But now that I'm actually listening to this, I might tell some of my cousins to um, tune into the show. But you, are, you have some valid points. Well, thank you very much for your call, Thomas. <laughs> thank you. You're uh, all right. Now, Velma, you work with older older students. Um, I work with eight-year-olds. Um, you work with with college students. What's your sense of their ability to navigate the the advertising that's aimed at them? Yes. Um, 
That's a real good question. Let me just start out by saying, I guess, over the many years that I've been at Howard University, uh, I've had some observations uh, uh, just in looking at students there at campus, uh, even our student newspaper, I would say that at least once a month, uh, sometimes almost weekly, it, it just depends, uh, there's an article that highlights the issue of uh, materialism and the commercialization of uh, children and adolescents as well as uh, young people. And so uh, at many levels there 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 is uh, keen awareness uh, about what is going on in this area I clearly can see too that a lot of uh, the young uh, the, the college students are very much into the electronics to the point where it's almost as if I have to and many of the faculty members we have to just go through layers and layers to just reach them oftentimes in the classroom uh, meaning uh, some of us feel that uh, while again just like television, uh, the internet, it's a wonderful learning tool, but at the same time, many of us feel that uh, it's compromising uh, our students' um, ability to really think for themselves, to uh, get information, to deconstruct, and it's clearly not an issue at uh, my university. I have colleagues across the country, and uh, we're all saying some of the same things about how the technology is really, quite frankly, making our students um, uh, lazy and uh, not quite um, uh, scholarly in their pursuits of uh, learning. One of the things that I decided to do was to actually, in order to uh, increase students' awareness and uh, also to just learn what uh, they're experiencing because they're at a time in their lives where uh, the commercialization, they've been through the commercialization of childhood as children themselves uh, at a time when clearly my life was much more simple. As we've just said 20, 30 years ago, it certainly wasn't like this when we were coming up. I decided to do a course called, um, I developed a course called Youth and Consumer Culture as a way to uh, increase their awareness and understanding about the influences of uh, commercialism uh, on uh, youth and to look at what groups in our communities can do about it and not only uh, what the average person can do, but what can we do in terms of laws and policies at, at the local, state, and federal level? What kinds of legislation uh, exist or do we need to create that can just help us to level the playing field, quite frankly, because we we see that these corporations, they've got millions and billions of dollars to spend on marketing and advertising to children, and yet uh, parents and educators, health professionals, uh, we clearly don't have that kind of money to create the powerful uh, uh, lobbying uh, on our behalf. So uh, the course has just been um, uh, a real, uh, I, I would just say, a number one in terms of when I look at students' enthusiasm uh, to, to uh, learn and uh, voice their opinions about what's going on, to write about what's going on. And I tell you, they really keep me informed. Uh, some who've taken the class like a, a year ago will stop in and say, did you hear? Um, many of them, they're on the Internet all the time. And so they they are constantly aware of the, the marketing and the celebrities that are used to endorse products that clearly aren't uh, healthy for our children. So, you know, there's a lot of awareness uh, at the at the at the college level. And yet at the same time, and Susan knows this, it's like when I bring up that there are certain schools that are taking the position that, you know, we really don't need to have computers in the classroom until eighth grade, ninth grade. I mean, many of them are like, what? Uh, 
oh, I grew up on it when I was such a young age. And by not introducing it, are we not, in fact, uh, slowing down the success or the, the, the success of, of, of children's learning? And so we get into some real interesting debates. And uh, clearly, I try to point out the uh, research that has guided uh, where we are with um, organizations that, that, that really have prompted organizations like CCFC that, in fact, we really do need to mobilize ourselves to come up against these powerful influences on children and family development. Uh, because so many things, when there's a powerful influence, they become the given. Yes. It's as if they're the norm. Mm -hmm. We're going to go back to the phone, and uh, we have a caller. Are you there? Yes. Uh, uh, well, thank you. Welcome. Arlington. Hi. Uh, I long-time campaigner against TV violence. In fact, TV stands for Teaches Violence. <laughs> I made a bumper sticker to that effect. Um, wow. It's, it was very popular, but made no mark on the violence because uh, it's a powerful industry. Uh, TV auto ads also inspire reckless driving. Uh, I don't know why we allow that. Uh, we uh, One thing we can all do that can be very effective. Uh, there are quarterly and annual meetings of the National Governors, Governors Conference and Conference of Mayors. Um, we can appeal to our local uh, representatives to these events to call for cities not to participate in the filming in, this, in our streets. Mm -hmm. Use of our public highways to show extremely violent acts and reckless driving that inspires others to do it. And President Bush inspired worldwide calamity by showing that we should choose violence over all other means in settling disputes. Thank you. Thank you for your call. Now, Susan, I want to turn to you um, because there's one more aspect of the, the detrimental effects of advertising on children that we haven't spoken about uh, yet. Uh, and that is the sexualization of children, and uh, and particularly the marketing to the group that we call the tweens. Could you speak a little bit about that? Yes, um, there, there's growing concern about um, about about the impact of of sexualized media on children, and I think it's really important when we think about um, sexualization to remember that we're not talking about sex. You know, sex is about relationship. We're not talking about sex education, you know, in, in the schools, which I actually support. That, that the media, that the, the kind of, of sexualization that is being sold to children through the media is about sex as power, about, about women and men to some extent as objects, about sex and violence. And in, it has nothing to do, you know, with the real meaning um, of sex. And what's happening is that very young children, you know, as young as, as three and four, are getting, like, the trappings of sexuality without really having any way of understanding what it means. So, you know, we have thong underpants being marketed to really young girls, and we have the highly sexualized brat dolls who were um, designed, actually, to compete with Barbie. And um, actually, this week, I in know, fact, you all have your the brats are no longer for sale. Uh, oh. Be but it's not because of any kind of consumer movement. It's because um, Mattel, which makes Barbies, actually managed. Um, there's a lawsuit, and Mattel won, and so um, MG um, Entertainment cannot uh, manufacture the brat styles anymore. Now, you all give an award each year to the, to the worst toy. Is that true? Yes. Actually, this is our, our first year for the toady. Uh-huh. Uh, the toy industry gives the Toy of the Year awards uh -huh. right around now, the Toady Awards. Uh-huh. And so we decided to do the Toady Awards, toys oppressive and detrimental to, oh, and destructive to young children. Uh-huh. And um, we nominated five toys, and uh, the one that won this year by huge numbers of votes. Over 6,000 people voted in this. Um, and the one that won was the Dallas Cowboy cheerleader Barbie. Yeah. 
I saw that today on their website. Yes, and and there you have you know sort of the marriage of of two of the most sexualized icons, yeah. you know, for young girls. And you know, the American Psychological Association also just came out with with the report on the sexualization of girls, and really linking media images and um, and and marketing to to girls feeling badly about themselves and and badly about their bodies, immediately leading to concerns about eating disorders, and also their sense of themselves as objects. Yeah. And you know, I just was struck by the, the grouping, the tweens, because they put those children between the ages of 8 and 13. Yes. And, and, and I look over the desks at second graders every day, and I have a whole number of 8-year-olds, and it's just hard to believe that they're lumped into the same category and marketed for those the products that really are for much older kids. Yes, I mean the tweens, the whole notion of tweens, and you even hear um, you know the president's daughters being referred to now as as tweens, but it's a comp- it's a marketing demographic. It's not a developmental category. No, for and sure. it even starts as young as 6 and goes to as old as 14 and 6-year-olds don't have anything in common with 14-year-olds. That we know. We're going to go to the phones for one last question. Yes, hello? Hello? I guess they're not there. So uh, we're going to go back um, and have a little bit more time to speak with our with our two guests today. And um, Susan and, and Velma, I just wanted to ask you if you have any you know, any thoughts that have come from the questions that we've received from callers tonight or from the things we've said, things that are still in your mind? Uh, Velma, I'll turn to you first. Well, I think, uh, the well, clearly the people who have called in uh, appreciate and clearly understand uh, the issues that we have talked about. Uh, the last gentleman who called uh, talked about uh, taking uh, our uh, strategies to elected officials and uh, it it just shows me that each strategy that we take no matter how small we are making a dent in this very huge elephant uh, of, of all these corporations and industries that market to our children and I think that if uh, I mean, we we have to be optimistic. We have seen change take uh, place, and that should just uh, be a moment that we should use every small success to uh, just continue to uh, advocate and protest and um, make sure that we are making people aware and, and that we're, we, we clearly are doing something about, we're taking action against these very giant, very, very well-oiled uh, marketing machines um, to uh, advocate on behalf of children. So it's just uh, uh, good to hear from people uh, calling in locally. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Velma. And Susan, any last thoughts? Yes, I, I, I was also, you know, just delighted to hear what the, your callers had to say. And I, I hope that people will think not just about their own children, but about other people's children as well. And we'll go to our website, which is um, www.commercialfreechildhood.org, and take a look at the things that we're doing and also join in. Right now, you can... Um, you can go to our website and send an email to Scholastic, which has been in their marketing in their book clubs. They've been marketing things like the Bratz brand or and video games and M&M video game, you know, under the guise of their book clubs. And so we have a campaign going on right now with Scholastic that's asking them to put the book back in book fair and to you know market books and not all these other toys and media link products. So, um, and we also have lots of fact sheets and a guide to commercial-free book fairs and a guide to commercial-free holidays. So, um, I hope that that you know we will really continue to to think of this as not just a family issue but an issue for society. I mean, there's not much more important than our children. No, that's a, what a wonderful place for our conversation to to end. We could just underline that. 
there's really nothing more important than our children. I have to thank you both for being our guests tonight. Um, Belma LaPointe and Susan Lynn, it's been wonderful to have you on the show. It's been informative. It's been sobering. Um, but it has been so helpful. I want to thank you both. Well, thank you. It's always thank a pleasure you. to talk with you. Yes, thank you. It's great to have you here. Well, I want to let you all know that we're going to be turning to that portion of our show where we have our story from Kalanje Lushegun, which we always have for the children. So uh, when you hear Bobby McFerrin with his music, please gather those children up. We have a lovely story tonight. We also we have another Uncle Remus story. We have a Br'er Bear and Br'er Tiger, and uh, it's just one of those trickster stories that's just so popular in the African-American tradition. And and a uh, wonderful story for children to hear, so please gather them. story. In olden days, the creatures used to plow the fields and plant their crops same as menfolks. When the rains came, the crops were good. But one year, no rain came, and there was a famine in the land. The sun boiled down like a red ball of fire. All the creeks and ditches and springs dried up. All the fruit on the trees shriveled, and there was no food and drinking water for the creatures. It was a terrible time. But there was one place where there was plenty of food and a spring that never ran dry. It was called Clayton Field. And in the field stood a big pear tree, just a hanging down with juicy pears, enough for everybody. So the poor hungry creatures went over to the field to get something to eat and something to drink. But a great big Bengal tire lived under the pear tree. And when the creatures came nigh, he rose up and said, I'll eat you up. I'll eat you up if you come here. All the creatures backed off and crawled to the edge of the woods and sat there with misery in their eyes, looking at the field. They were so starved and so parched that their ribs showed through their hides and their tongues hung out of their mouths. Now, just about that time, Along came Bear Rabbit, just a-hopping and a-skipping as if he'd never been hungry or thirsty in his life. Say, what's the matter with you creatures? asked Bear Rabbit. We're hungry and thirsty and can't find any food or water. That's what's the matter with us, answered the creatures. And we can't get into Clayton Field because Bear Tiger said he'd eat us up if we came over there. Mm, that's not right, said Bear Rabbit. It's not right for one animal to have it all and the rest to have nothing. Come here. Come close. I'm going to tell you something. And Bear Rabbit jumped up on a stump so that all could see him as they crowded round. Then Bear Rabbit had finished whispering his plan. He said, Now, you all be at your post in the morning. Everyone be there before sunup. The first animal to get to his post was Bear, Bear. Before daybreak, he came tooting a big club on his shoulder and took his place alongside an old hollow log. The next creature to arrive was Bear Alligator Cooter, a snapping turtle who crawled in the log. Then Bear Turkey Buzzard and Bear Eagle and all the big fowls of the air came a-sailing in and roosting on the tops of the tall trees. Next to arrive were the tree-climbing animals, like Bear Raccoon and his family, and Sis Possum and all her little ones. They climbed into the low trees. 
Then followed the littler creatures, like bear squirrel, bear muskrat, bear otter, and all kinds of birds. They all took their posts and waited for bear rabbit. There was bear, bear, a beating on the hollow log with all his might. Pick-a-boom, 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 bam-bam. Inside the log, Bear Cooter was a-jumpin'. Pick-a-boom, 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 boom-boom. Bear Turtle Buzzard, Bear Eagle, and Bear Chicken Hawk were a-flappin' their wings and a-shakin' the big trees, and the trees were a-bending, and the leaves were a-flying. Bear Raccoon and Sis Possum were stirring up a fuss in the low trees, while the little creatures were a-shakin' all the bushes. And on the ground and amongst the leaves, the teeny-weeny creatures were a-scrambling round. All in all, it sounded like a cyclone was a-coming through the woods. Pretty soon, when the sun was about half-hour high, along came Bear Rabbit down the road with a long grass rope wrapped around his shoulder. And he was just a-singing, Oh, Lord, oh, Lord, there's a great big wind. It's a-coming through the woods. It's a-going to blow all the people off the earth. And while he was singing his song, a powerful noise broke out in the woods. All this racket so early in the morning woke Bear Tiger out of a deep sleep, and he rushed to the big road to see what was going on. What's going on out there, huh? He growled. What's going on out there? All of the creatures were too scared to say anything to Bear Tiger. They just looked at him and hollered for Bear Rabbit to, Tie me, please. Please, sir, tie me. Now all this time, Bear Rabbit just kept a-hollin'. There's a great big cyclone a-coming through the woods that's going to blow all the people off the earth. And the animals just kept a-making their noise and hollered, Tie me, Bear Rabbit, tie me! Then Bear Rabbit came around by Bear Tiger. Bear Tiger roared out, Bear Rabbit, I want you to tie me. I don't want the big wind to blow me off the earth. I don't have time to tie you, Bear Tiger. I've got to go down to the road and tie those other folks to keep the wind from blowing them off the earth because it sure looks to me like a great big hurricane is a-coming through these woods. Bear Tiger looked towards the woods where Bear Bear was a-beating and Bear Cooter was a-jumping and the birds were a-flapping and the trees were a-bending and the leaves were a-flying and the bushes were a-shaking and the wind was a-blowing and it seemed to him as if Judgment Day had come. Old Bear Tiger was so scared he couldn't move. And then he said to Bear Rabbit, look a here I got my head up against this pine tree. It won't take but a minute to tie me to it. Please, tie me, Bear Rabbit, tie me, because I don't want the wind to blow me off the face of the earth. Bear Rabbit shook his head. Bear Tiger, I don't have time to bother with you. I've got to go and tie those other folks, I told you. I don't care about those other folks, said Bear Tiger. I want you to tie me so the wind won't blow me off the earth. Look, Bear Rabbit, I've got my head here against this tree. Please, sir, tie me. All right, Bear Tiger, just hold still a minute, and I'll take out time to save your striped hide, said Bear Rabbit. Now, while all this talking was going on, the noise kept getting louder and louder. Somewhere back yonder it sounded like thunder was a-rolling. Bear, Bear was still a-beating on the log. Pick-a-boom, 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 bam-bam. Bear Cooter was still a-jumping in the log. Pick-a-boom, 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 boom-boom. And the birds were a-flapping, and the trees were a-bending, and the leaves were a-flying, and the bushes were a-shaking, and the creatures were a-crying, and Bear Rabbit was a-tying. He wrapped the rope around Bear Tiger's neck, and he pulled it tight. He wrapped it around Bear Tiger's feet, and he pulled it tight. Then Bear Tiger tried to pitch and rear, and he asked Bear Rabbit to tie him a little tighter, because I don't want the big wind to blow me off the earth. So... Bear Rabbit wrapped him round and round so tight that even the biggest cyclone in the world couldn't blow him away. And then Bear Rabbit backed off and looked at Bear Tiger. When he saw that Bear Tiger couldn't move, Bear Rabbit called out, Hush your fuss, children. Stop all of your crying. Come down here. I want to show you something. Look, here's your great Bear Tiger. He had all the pears and all the drinking water and all of everything, enough for everybody. But he wouldn't give a bite of food or a drop of water to anybody, no matter how much they needed it. So now, Bear Tiger, you just stay there till these ropes drop off you. 
And you, children, gather up your crocus sacks and water buckets. Get all the pears and drinking water you want, because the good Lord doesn't love a stingy man. He put the food and water here for all his creatures to enjoy. After the animals had filled their sacks and buckets, they all joined in the song of thanks to the Lord for their leader, Bear Rabbit, who had shown them how to work together to defeat their enemy, Bear Tiger. Well, now we've come to the end of our story and also the end of our program. And uh, thanks are in order. I want to thank our engineer, T, for doing a fine job this evening. I want to thank our guests, Velma LaPointe and Susan Lynn, for being with us and for bringing so much to the show. And I want to thank our storyteller, Kalanje Lushagoon, for his fine work. And to our listeners and our callers, thank you for tuning in. And we'll be on next mar March it's the 16th, third Monday of the month. So I hope you'll be there. And to all my second graders at the Waldorf School, good night, children, and may the stars watch over you. Your children.